Amen. Amen, amen. Yes, you'd be seated if you would, please. I am glad to see you all bundled up this morning. I'm glad I wore a sweater myself. And uh, it, it might be, you know, maybe here in the middle, if you need to get up and do some calisthenics or something, get warmed up. Uh, maybe gather some of them bulletins together and start a little fire where you're at, whatever you need. <laughs> do what you need to do. But uh, glad to be with you all this morning. It's 2022, y'all. Yeah. That means yesterday was the 22nd anniversary of the anticipated and, and uh, fearful destruction of modern civilization and the prediction that Jesus was coming back. Y2K, it came and it went. And Jesus continues to tarry. But we look ahead to another year. We look ahead to what, uh, what is to come. And we look ahead to what is to come after. But this morning we are uh, going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 10, uh, specifically looking at verses 17 through 31. So I encourage you to open your Bibles up to the book of Mark. And uh, there at that passage, Mark 10, 17 through 31. As we will be looking at some conversations Jesus had concerning eternal life. And as we go through these conversations, uh, we'll be looking at three different questions that drive us. And so these three questions that we ask ourselves, how can the worth of my life transcend my own limitations? We ask ourselves, how can I guarantee this transcendence when so many have failed and we ask ourselves, how do I know if I am still in God's hands? So our story here, it's going to begin uh, in verse 17, uh, chapter 10 in Mark. And it begins, as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, before we get too deep into this, there's a couple key assumptions uh, affecting this man's question that we need to look at. The first is with this word inherit, where the concept of the promised land is directly tied to God's promise for his people. The Israelites, they were given uh, this promised land as inheritance. And so this man is asking about how to obtain this new promise of eternal life. And the second assumption is the idea behind eternal life, which is not a concept that was fully vetted within the teaching of the Old Testament, but it began to evolve over time. See, in the Old Testament, to be given life is to have abundance and fulfillment. Uh, it's to uh, have a bountiful existence. But you see, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes began to be reflected in Judaism uh, through the understanding that even the bountiful life still comes to a close. And the human heart, it still yearns for more. Hence the debates that we find referenced in the synoptic gospels concerning the resurrection. And the question was driving them as much as it drives us today. There must be more to life than this. Do I matter more than the sum of my parts? 
Will anything of me last beyond what I know now? And so you see the naturalism of the modern age, it answered to these questions with the resounding no. You don't matter more than what you have. What you see is what you get. There is no after. And so from that, this gave way to nihilism, that nothing matters. You don't matter. I don't matter. We don't matter. You might as well inoculate yourself against any pain and suffering and get through life as best you can. It also gave way to existentialism and that life is short. Live it up. Experience as much ecstasy in life as you can get. And yet, even with these philosophical salves, our souls are still restless for more. And so here in the West, we now we've, we've moved beyond the modern age and we've left the ideals of naturalism with its stilted, boxed-in existence and we've firmly landed in what's called postmodernism whereby in this contemporary mood, the individual becomes supreme and the diversity and global society and culture becomes the determinative axiom of existence. So people now look for their existence and their meaning and how they make the world a better place, how they contribute to the progress of society, how they use their personal wealth and influence to better the life of their neighbor. Solomon had a phrase for this too. Nothing new under the sun. See, here in our text, we have this man who's falling to his knees before Jesus. And he's asking how he can be someone who will be able to participate in this lasting life of abundance. And after an initial probing question, Jesus asks him about how well he has in fulfilling the laws to love his neighbor as himself. Look back at verse 19, where Jesus continues to address this man. He says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. You see, even way back then in this ancient time, this man was living out the postmodern life. He lives in and for community. He has been blessed with abundance and he seeks to bless others and he's not gained it by oppressing or diminishing anyone. And yet he still longed to know if what he has done, if what he has accomplished, if that his life has lived will have any significance beyond death. He wants to know how the worth of his life can transcend his own limitations. Do you sense those questions in your life? Do you feel that question as it, it swirls around the way you make decisions and the way you view things? You see, this is one of those things in life where we can see a noticeable reactionary difference between humans and animals. I had a dog when I was young. His name was Bogey. Uh, it was a basset hound. He had very short legs and a very large belly. He traveled the same path through from our house to the neighbors, and, and it it left a a, a mark in the ground <laughs> to where none of the grass was left on the ground, and none of his hair was left on his belly. <laughs> but he he loved to do this. He loved to go off on his little adventures, letting his nose take him wherever he may. And some days, you know, it wasn't uncommon for him to be gone for a few days. We even would get calls from someone in a neighboring town saying, hey, we've got your dog. 
But one of those times, he was gone for a few weeks, and we began to wonder whether he was ever going to come back. We figured, you know, maybe he got lost. Maybe, you know, he got picked up by someone, and they decided to keep him. Or maybe something tragic happened, and he died. That was until we saw him waddling down the road, heading back to our house. Now, unfortunately, he did get hit by a car while he was gone, and he had several wounds. And without going into much detail, the conditions of his wounds let us know that he was just lying somewhere in a ditch or on the side of the road, just waiting to die. And animals do that. When it's their time, they just, they just wander off and they just decide this is it. They just accept what comes. There's no, uh, there's no fret. There's no worry about what's coming. They've lived their purpose. They've, they've, they've served their time. They've done what they were called to do. And then it's just, it's ready to be over and they're okay with it. There's no fear or anxiety about the end, but that's not the case with us, is it? We as humans, we consistently look for ways to extend our life beyond our own time. And this man was no different in that regard. And to his question, Jesus communicates to him the same thing as he had communicated to others, that whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, for the gospels, will save it. In other words, letting go of life is how we truly live You can write that down as our first point, our first answer this morning. Letting go of life is how we truly live. Look back at verse 21. After the man stated that he had done all these things since his youth, we read, and Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. There are some interesting cultural realities present in this conversation that might not be apparent to us when we first read through this. I mentioned already some of the assumptions at play uh, with this man's initial question, And uh, the questions concerning Israel's inheritance, but that's not the only Old Testament reference. If you look at the commands that Jesus asked about, there are the the latter five commands of the Decalogue, that is the uh, Ten Commandments. Jesus tells this man that he lacks one thing, but gives him four things to do. This is very reminiscent of when Jesus was asked, what's the one greatest commandment? And he said, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What's going on here is, is, is not that, that Jesus who could command the winds and the wave, he could give sight to the blind, he could, he could enable the lame to walk again and give life back to the dead, but he just really wasn't good at math. No, that's, that's not the case. That's not what's going on. Jesus said that these two commandments sum up all of the law. And we can say it today that we are to love God with all that we are and to love each other with all that we have. Of these two things, Jesus said that this man lacked one of them. He clearly loved others with all that he had, but was he able to love God with all that he is? 
Jesus reveals in this man's heart the main tension of our story. That is what we hold on to can keep us from being held by God. In verse 22, we read that he was disheartened by this saying, and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, I've wafted back and forth a little bit on on whether I want to go here, but I've got a soapbox I want to get on. And it doesn't really drive this story forward much, but it's, I think it's just something I'm going to have to go ahead and just get off my chest so we can move on and be done with it. But see, I've read this story lots of times. I've listened to the story and I've heard people talk about this story many times. And they talk about how big of a tragedy it is in this man's story and how he walked away from Jesus. Now, I said a few moments ago that that Jesus just told him to do four things, right? And maybe you looked back at the scripture and you could kind of only count three. Maybe some of you saw four. And really, you could probably say it's it's two things with with qualifiers attached to each. But here's, here's what he said to him, right? He said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. The first thing that Jesus told him to do was go. Him walking away from Jesus was an act of obedience. He was doing what he was told to do. Now he ain't happy about it, but he's doing it. Now I get it that if, if that was the end of the story, you know, if, if, if him walking off in obedience was it, you know, end of the story, end of sermon, really? Thanks for coming. Go get your kids. We'll see you next week. Stay warm. (laughs) But that's not it. That's not the end. Jesus takes the opportunity to teach his disciples more. And he's, he's pressing even further into this question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he does so to the emotional response of this man who's disheartened and goes away full of sadness. He's disheartened, his countenance is darkened, and his demeanor changes from the exuberance of running up to Jesus and falling onto his knees and asking, what what do I need to do in order to have this life of abundance that I've joyed and for it to last forever? And Jesus looks at him and he tells him to lose his life. All you've known, get rid of it. Let it go. And the weight of this begins to crush him and he feels a deep sorrow and not wholly different than the deep sorrow Christ felt in the garden of Gethsemane when he asked his father to let this cup pass me by. I think this is why it's such a soapbox for me is is that feeling sorrowful is not a disqualifier for faithfulness to God, especially if our sorrow leads to repentance if our sorrow compels us towards obedience. Romanticizing persecution or suffering, even though, yes, we are called to be faithful through it, it's, it's not helpful. It's not genuine. Trying to muster up some kind of, of, of false joy or false happiness in the midst of pain and suffering and grief, it, it strips Jesus the power and significance of what it means to be Emmanuel, God with us. If Jesus took pleasure in suffering, then it's no longer something he did for us. 
okay, I'm stepping off my soapbox now. <laughs> but the emotional pain that it causes us when we, ask, when we are asked to let go of control, to let go of our self-directed purpose, to let go of our own definition of significance, it gives us a glimpse into what we value, what we treasure. And it very well could be that what we hold on to can keep us from being held by God. However, when we let go of what possesses us in this life, when we let go of the things that we hold dear, and that is to approach life with open hands and truly live out not your will, not my will, but yours be done, Lord, then we will truly live, not only in this life, but in the one after. This is how our worth transcends our own limitations when we resolve to find our worth in Christ. Yet there are more questions that drive us. Like how can you and I guarantee this transcendence when so many have failed? And we wonder to ourselves, do I need to be that special? Do I need to be that exceptional? Do I need to be that unique that where all others have failed, I will succeed? No. Faith in the power and provision of Jesus guarantees his possession. That is our second answer this morning. Faith and power in the provision of Jesus guarantees his possession. Through the submission of all that we are to Christ, which includes living out love towards others in following him, is tantamount to fulfilling the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Following Christ is the other command that sums up the first five commands of the Decalogue. That is a profound point Mark is making here when sharing the story. And Jesus is looking to make another profound point when he springboards off of this circumstance to teach his disciples. Look back at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? As disheartened as this man was, the disciples were even more shocked. You see, there were distinct social classes back then, and, and one could not change his or her station in life very easily. Their economic system didn't allow for the level of entrepreneurship that we have here. It, it didn't allow even for there to be a, a career path in, in a private sector where you could, you could promote and move up or even, even change gears and, and transfer into a, a different company, a, a different market and still progress and do better. They didn't have that. You were locked in to where you were. 
You either had to be inherited something or you had to have some sort of uh, special gift or talent that you could connect with uh, the government and have, have some way there. A tax collector would be like that. But a tax collector would be hated by many. This man was not a tax collector. He didn't rob anyone. He did not covet another's possession and subsequently defraud them. The disciples and many others, they would consider him favored by God and primarily because of his righteous living. The sky was like the Keanu Reeves of Judaism. <laughs> he had everything going for him. And yet Jesus said that he might not make the cut. He's got an uphill battle in front of him. In fact, it's going to be like trying to cook some eggs on ice cubes. But it wasn't just Jesus's words concerning this man that had him astonished. Jesus said point blank, it's difficult for anyone to make the cut. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Like I said, cooking eggs on ice cubes, a camel going through the eye of the needle trying to paint with concrete on the canvas of air. To which you might reply, that's impossible. And I would say you're right. That's exactly the point that Jesus is getting at here. It's difficult for someone like this man to enter the kingdom of God because it's difficult for everyone to enter the kingdom of God, but even more so for those who hold on to things that keep them from being held on to by God. And to their question of who can be saved, Jesus replied, glance back at verse 27 here. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. This is why it's called good news. This is why it's called the gospel, because what is impossible for us is in fact possible for him. The gospel is good news about a new path, a new humanity, a new way that started with Jesus. It doesn't take us long to realize that our world, that humanity is forever flawed. Yes, we have amazing qualities. We can shower one another with love. We can uh, create and express creative beauty. We can conceptualize and invent masterful designs. And yet with each of those, we can corrupt what was God's purpose in them and to reflect his goodness, to reflect our own desire for autonomy and individuality. We corrupt love by making it something that is to fulfill our own interests. We corrupt beauty by determining some possess it and others do not. We corrupt our ingenuity when it marginalizes and destroys others who are made in the image of God. But Jesus showed and provided us a better way. And even though we have diverged from God's design, he never did. Jesus calls us to leave our, our self-directed autonomous path and join him. But we are on different paths, different tracks. And the destination of humanity's track, it does not lead to communion with God. It does not lead to peace or a better world. Our proclivity as humans to continually choose self-rule and self-sufficiency only leads to destruction 
you think I'm being overdramatic. Have you ever gotten mad at someone because they cut you off in traffic? It's the pathway to murder. Have you ever wished that you had won a prize or the lottery instead of someone else? That's the pathway to theft. You might think that you're better than that because you have not actually murdered anyone or actually stole from anyone, but don't for one minute praise yourself because you happen to win the lottery of privileged birth and having parents and a community to mold your behavior to not act on those self-guided impulses. Your heart leads you to think of yourself first over and above others. Your behavior might look better than some, but your heart is still corrupted by the desire to choose your own way, your own path, your own truth. The truth is that if no one ever told you murder was wrong and there are legal consequences for it, you'd choose to destroy that person cutting you off in traffic. It's part of who we are as humans. It's part of our nature. How do we change our nature? We can't. We can't. It's impossible for us. But not with God. Because all things are possible for God. This is the good news of Jesus. He came to change our nature He who never departed from God's plan, he took on our own consequences of doing so. The author and origin of life took on death and destroyed it rather than letting death be the final destroyer of us. And now through him, through Jesus, we can be a part of God's design again. We can leave this path, the track humanity is on and get on a train that's heading to a different destination. And if you hear these words and your heart yearns for something better, if you long for a world and a life that transcends, if your spirit is heavy because of all the conflicting and contradictory morality causes prevalent in this world's culture, then you have a ticket waiting for you to get on a different train heading towards true peace, true humanity true community and true restoration and hear the words of Christ in a new way as he says to you come follow me my brothers and sisters gathered here today hear this it is in following him with all that we are and all that we have that we leave what was our life behind and we live for a reality far greater than we ever be far greater than anything we could ever obtain, far greater than anything we could ever know in this life. We live out this gospel reality in every aspect of our marriages, our work relationships, our friendships. Through them all, we approach it as if it is not our life, but Christ's. How does he want me to treat my spouse today? How does Christ want me to communicate with my boss today how does Christ want me to teach and train my children today how does Christ want me to share and show my love to my brother and sister today how does Christ want me to speak for him and about him to the world today 
You see, the real problem with this wealthy, this wealthy man was not his wealth. Jesus doesn't call us all to be poor. The problem was that he did not understand truly who Jesus was. When people who understand who Jesus is, they do what he asks. They follow in his way. They live like a new human. All because God has, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, made a way to change our nature. It's no longer our guarantee of transcendence. It's his. Let him do the work in your life. But we still have one more question to answer. So we ask ourselves, how do I know if I'm still in God's hands And our answer is continual cross-bearing and confidence in Christ keeps us in his hands. Continual cross-bearing and confidence in Christ keeps us in his hands. There's a lot of theology that can go into answering this question, and much of it is good to think on. And study, uh, but we don't really have time to deal with a lot of that this morning, and I quite frankly don't have the energy to delve into it either. So instead, we are just going to uh, continue to look at what remains in our story here in Mark and let the Spirit lead us into truth through the proclamation of His Word. Amen. All right, verse 28. And Peter began to say to him, <laughs> You ever notice how it's always Peter? who says something and if there's something to be said Peter's gonna say it he speaks for the group even when he doesn't (laughs) gotta love Peter but there's there's something here and this is this is kind of a sidebar um it's a it's a freebie no charge right so you're welcome for that but the, the disciples in the Gospels are consistently portrayed as being a little bit foolish, ignorant at times, almost like a bunch of goons. Uh, but the thing is, this was a literary style that they employed used to elevate Christ. And not that Jesus needed a leg up, but it was more about presenting themselves as weak as they shared their experiences with others. And so they valued their own weakness in comparison to Christ. That's actually a a good example for us and how we share our own faith story. All right, so back to Peter. Verse 28 there. See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. There's a lot here. So let's just kind of unpack this uh, piece at a time. First, Peter's still concerned about this camel going through the eye of the needle thing Uh, that really floored him. And so he's kind of, he's kind of checking in with Jesus. Uh, You know, Jesus just told him that this, this guy, this rock star, he might not make the cut because uh, he needed to, to get rid of and sell everything that he had. And so Peter's like, well, well, we've left everything and followed you. Does that mean we can make the cut? Does that mean that we have done enough to inherit eternal life? Are we still in God's hands? 
And so Jesus affirms their sacrifice by assuring them that what feels uh, like loss is recouped and rewarded in ways we would not imagine. But he does have some insights that they need to consider. He said, many who are first will be last and the last first. This is not the, the first time Jesus had said something like this to them, and it won't be the last either. In Mark 9, 35, Jesus told them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In Mark 10, 43 through 44, he said, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The disciples continually struggled with the appropriation of authority and power. Jesus had to keep reminding them that true authority is expressed not by asserting yourself over others or insisting on your placement as first, but instead as one who lives to serve others. Jesus' inclusion of that phrase here and Mark's use of it in telling Jesus' story, it highlights that yes, they have loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength through their continual confidence in Christ, but that they lack continual cross-bearing in loving their neighbor. The two cannot be separated. We must love God with all that we are and love others with all that we have. This is what it means to follow him. This is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is what it means to possess eternal life or rather to have eternal life possess us. This is how we know we are in God's hands. Pragmatically, what's that look like? I know some of you out there are thinking, you know, this all sounds good, but what does that mean? What does bearing our cross work out in the lives of Harvest Decatur? Open hands. If you're like me, you want to hold on to our pastor. You don't want to let him go. Open hands. But I do find comfort in Jesus' words here that no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands will not receive a hundredfold. Now, uh, just for some clarity's sake with Jesus' words here, this isn't to mean that you leave your wife or your husband to get a better one. This does not mean that you shirk your responsibility to your children or your aging parents. It doesn't mean that if you're struggling to pay your house payment, you simply walk away from those, that financial agreement and claim it's for the gospel. It does mean that we do not let these things that hold on to us keep us from being held on to God. You know, we develop some pretty tight bonds in our small groups but we should never treat our small groups the way Peter did on the mountain of transfiguration, wanting to just camp out there forever. We have a, a model of multiplication in small groups because we want to see more people grow in maturity. 
We want to see more people experience those tight bonds of community. We want to expand our closeness with one another so that we can all participate through a diversity and unity. And so we invite new people into our groups. We train up other leaders so that we can multiply one group to two groups, two groups to four groups. We multiply the opportunity for growth and discipleship. We multiply the opportunity for genuine community and mutual care. And really, that's the same principle that applies to church planting. As people grow in influence, leadership, biblical knowledge, as they learn to use their spirit-empowered gifts more, we don't hold on to them with tight, clenched fists. We let them go. We send them on to multiply the kingdom of God and start new churches. So even though it feels like a loss, what Jesus is saying here is it is actually a gain because we gain more brothers and sisters in Christ. We gain more family to call our own. We also gain wealth, not wealth used to fulfill our own interests or entertainment, but wealth within the family of God. That when someone is in need, if someone does not have a place to stay, that in this community, in this family, we can say we have a place for you. We have a home for you. We believe that, don't we, Harvest Decatur? Jesus' preaching of eternal life coupled with his power over death have made it clear that those who follow Christ will experience life forever. But not just existence forever. No, the full, bountiful life of abundance forever. Our treasure is in heaven. But this doesn't mean a grueling existence until then. In this age, in this time, in this life, we will experience the blessing of a community that loves and supports and sustains one another. And in the life after, we will experience that community to the fullest. And we will experience God's love to the fullest. But eternal life, it, it starts now. Harvest Decatur. Live like it. Live like it. Let's kick that off. Let's kick off the new year and we'll start it with prayer as our worship team comes up. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for coming and showing us what it means to follow, what it means to truly be human. You did it when we couldn't. And we look to you. We look to you in all things. We look to you now in this year ahead. We look to you for the direction of our church. We look to you for, for what we are to do how we are to live out walking, working, and worshiping for Christ. 
May your spirit bless us, empower us, strengthen us. And we long for the day, Lord. We long for the day when we get to embrace those that we have not known yet and to call them brother and sister. We long for the day that we get to embrace you, embrace our Lord, and pour out our heart in thankfulness for how you changed us, how you saved us, how you corrected us, how you made us better. God, we look to you for all of this. But in this time now, we ask that you help us. We thank you that you have not abandoned us, that you have not left us here alone, but that we have the helper, your spirit, is alive and present and well, and you do. You, you, you show us what is right. You show us what is true. We thank you for that. And Lord, we now, we praise you with more song to honor you more, to lift up your name more, and to declare who you are. And it is in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.